we are starting a new non-sermon series. I've wondered how to explain this. I've tried it with a few different people. I don't know how else to say it, except for the next year, we aren't doing sermon series. Now, oh, <laughs> you still get sermons. <laughs> oh. um, you know, I've, I've grown up in church culture pretty much all my life, and the thing you always have in church culture are sermon series. You know that, right? Like, these are series that you do for three, four, five, six weeks. Um, two years ago, we did a whole year on Jesus. We called it the year of Jesus, and we did this little mini-sermon series along the way. Um, this past year, we did a whole year of the book of Acts. But about a year and a half ago, uh, I remember wrestling with this idea that what would it be like to have no agenda for a year? Like to have enough organized, because there's no such thing as just organic, but enough organized that then leads you and takes you to something very organic. Because I think a lot of us, maybe I'm the only one, but I don't think so, we're all looking for moments with God. Like we just want a moment. Like, God, are you real? God, are you near? God, can you speak to me? And sometimes we get in the way of that with all of our planning. And there's something that's been put in place for hundreds of years within the universal church that keeps people from trying to plan and just to be open to experience. It's called the lectionary. Now, that may sound weird or, or nerdy, and it is, but it's great because the lectionary is a guided way without us putting our hands on it of what believers around the world are reading and interacting with. One of the things that we get caught up in as Christians is that we're special in the sense that we're so unique that what we're going through, no one else can relate to. And it's like we make ourselves lonelier. And so the idea behind doing a year through the lectionary is to go, yes, we are special, but we're not unique. There are people all over the world asking the same questions, dealing with the same things. Like this morning, we're going to look at a passage that hundreds of thousands and millions of believers around the world are interacting with, that they're thinking about. And my hope for us as we do this week in, week out, is to find encouragement. Like there are, there are Anglicans and there are Episcopal brothers and sisters and there are Methodists and there are others who are interacting with the same kind of grid of reading the scripture that we can be encouraged by, that we don't have to separate ourselves from. Because the lowest form of interacting as humans is dualism. You're wrong, I'm better, or I'm worse. And to go like, no, we're kind of all in this together, and we're trying to wrestle through these things together, I think is a step towards humility and openness and a willingness to learn from each other. So what we're going to do is, starting, really I did it last week, I just didn't tell you, but starting this week moving forward, for the next year, we are going to go off the church calendar. So right now, the time is ordinary time. And that's what it means. Nothing special. Like, not that big a deal, but it's still a big deal. Ordinary time. When we get to December, we will go into Advent. And we will be reading passages about the coming of Christ. When we get to beginning of next year, it'll be Epiphany and then Lent, Easter tide. And the idea is to let this kind of wash over us, these church seasons and these rhythms in Scripture. Last thing is this, one of the ways we want to help you with that is starting next week, we're going to provide a bookmark at the beginning of each month, and it'll be available the whole month, and it'll be guided readings and scripture for you. So there's still some organized there. It'll be scriptures that you can put, if you still read a hard copy Bible, 
that you can put in your Bible or you can take with you and put it in your journal. And it'll be things that everybody in this room, if you want to, can read together. This isn't some kind of let's do a huge Facebook group and let's really hype this up and make it into a thing. I don't want to make things into things. I think the Bible's a thing. It's enough. I think we're a thing, believers, we're enough. To be encouraged, though, that we can read Scripture together and know that, hey, like Brandon may be traveling, but he's reading this, but Zach, he's here, or he may be traveling, he's reading this, or Katie's here, she may be reading this, that all of us together are able to read this and to be encouraged by it. It actually gives you something to talk about if you want even. So we'll provide those starting next week. It'll be the beginning of each month. Okay? Good? Now, what do I want us to talk about this morning? As I was looking at all these passages and considering what we could talk about, the thing that stuck out to me was Psalms 91. I remember Psalms 91 from a child, like being a child, reading the Bible, um, because it seemed so visceral and vivid of someone who was really afraid, who was really afraid. And I could relate to that growing up, just being really afraid, a really anxious child, biting my nails at a young age, never stopped. Uh, I found myself like running scenarios over in my head time and time again, like a, they would call it clinically like being like hypervigilant. I was a very hypervigilant child from a young age. Um, dad not in the picture, not knowing what to do with that, biracial kid, Mississippi. Like there's just a lot of things there that I didn't always know what to do with. And I don't know if you can relate to this, but like it's just like it felt like there was just something humming always inside my chest, like something's going on there, and I couldn't cut it off. Um, can you relate to that? Yeah. See, it's not unique to me, is it? It's not unique to a biracial kid who was born in Iran, raised in Mississippi. It's something that all of us deal with. Like all of us deal with fear, and sometimes it's like paralyzing fear. You ever had those paralyzing fear moments where like something's big and you don't know what to do with it. And the only thing you do is like kind of stop in your tracks, maybe even have some kind of panic or anxiety attack. Like that happened to me. And embrace yourselves for a minute because it's going to be like, I don't know if I want to hear this. Just bear with me for a minute. I need to share my fear with you, okay? So uh, two and a half years ago, and I don't mean to be coy at this. It's just the church, if you're new, just so you know, this church has been through a lot. And two and a half years ago, we had to remove a, a pastor from position for some, some things that we just were like, man, this, this is not okay. This disqualifies you. And it's things that we had to really walk through. And, and that relationship I had with that person was very close. And a lot of things were happening in this church as well. Like, there were a lot of people leaving. Um, there were people going like, hey, this isn't what I want. Like, it was just a really hard time. And a lot of you, I know, sat in all that. Um, and... It was my job to kind of be the tip of the spear in that. And I remember uh, one evening trying to write a sermon. And this happens where I get really distracted. when I'm, I'm, I'm the kind of person that, like, it's planned procrastination, trust me. But still, it's procrastination. <laughs> like, and so I find myself trying to work on a message late at night. And sometimes my brain just needs a break. So I started, like, just seeing, oh, what's out there? And I came across this article that, that talked about this fear of, Fear. Like it was, it's a fear of fear. And I don't really know how else to describe it. It's, it's called, um, let me get the word right, tripophia. 
or triphobia, sorry, triphobia. And I'll get this right, tripophobia. This is how much I don't like this word. Tripophobia, this is the word. Right now, if you're trying to Google that, stop. Do not do this. Do not. I'm just, I'm, if you're listening, do not do this because you will not pay attention to me the rest of the time, all right? Somebody started tra- talking about tripophobia, and I thought, I'll look this up. It's, uh, it's the fear specifically of holes. Like, that's it. It's the fear of holes. If you see lots of holes together, and you're all, all of a sudden you guys are like, uh-uh, I can't do this. Listen, y'all, I went down this, like, I don't know what else it was, Reddit, wormhole, something. I took some bad advice from somebody, and I found myself down this wormhole, and by the, within 20, 30 minutes, my heart was racing, my palms were clammy, and I thought I was having a heart attack. That's how serious it got. Like, I just, I stopped. And I was, I thought, I'm going to go to the hospital. And I'd never experienced this before. Like, I pride myself in taking lots of shots in life. Oh, you got a big shot? You're the big boss man? Bring it on. Take a shot. Let's do this for a second. I'll be Little Mac and punch out. Let's do it. Like, I pride myself in that. And it's just like, this was too big of a shot. And, and I found that I could barely breathe. Um, and this is the next part because I did a lot of study, like what happened here? For the next two weeks, I had hundreds of little bumps all over both my hands. Isn't that gross? Don't look this word up. Do not do this. You're like, this is some kind of horror movie given to me on church on a Sunday morning. Don't do this. Like, and, and, and I was like, what is happening with me? Like, I, I couldn't close my hand. That's how swollen my hands got. And it's incredible, the psychology, anybody's a therapist, you get this, like the mind, what goes in the mind, the body will embody and actualize if you don't do the work around the mind. This is why, like, addiction's so easy. Your body will have to go somewhere if the mind's not willing to do the work around the thing you're interacting with. It's incredible. It's incredible how that like, and even the whole bumps thing, because the idea of tropophobia is holes, bumps, those kind of things. This fear, this deep fear of these things. Listen, for the next two years, uh, really for the next year and a half, whenever we, because we went to the beach twice during that time, I couldn't barely go out to the beach. Like Charlotte or Suzanne would bring back like coral or something, and I'd be like, oh, I can't do that. That's too much. And so all that said, like, that was a big moment in my life. Now, here's the thing. Was it just around the fear of holes? No. Like, there was more fear happening in my life. It just accentuated things. Like, the phobia brought out something deeper in me that I didn't know how to deal with. Now, why am I telling you this? Fear is a very powerful, powerful entity in our lives. And fear undealt with, not just fear of holes, fear undealt with will actualize in our lives and even destroy us if we're not willing to actually look at it and deal with it. See, this passage is about a person who has a lot of things to be afraid of, a lot of things. Like, let's just look at a few things. It says in verse 3, I'm going to read for the message because it just helps. And remember, this is poetry. This is something where somebody's trying to express something artistically they're dealing with in life. It says, he rescues you from hidden traps, shields you from deadly hazards. Fear nothing, not wild wolves in the night, wolves in the night, not flying arrows in the day, not disease 
that prowls through the darkness, not disaster that erupts at high noon. Think of these words. Look, hidden traps, deadly hazards, wolves in the night, flying arrows, disease, disaster. I mean, this is somebody who's experienced a lot of things worth being afraid of. Like this person's like going, goodness, life is scary, and life's a lot. Like disaster, disease, arrows. And what's interesting is, like this person wrote this at least 2,500 years ago. Could be 3,000 years ago. Could have been David. A lot of people within tradition say it's David. And then a lot of people say that David was pulling from somebody named Moses five or 800 years before him. So what we have is, is that this is a poem, a piece of literature that could, if tradition's right, was penned, written, said like 3,800 years ago. Isn't that crazy? Like this isn't 21st century, although we can relate to it in the 21st century. Like can you relate to, I know that you don't have flying arrows by your head, but do you ever feel attacked? You ever feel like somebody's like coming in hot? You're like, what's your, slow the roll, what's the deal? Why are you coming at me? I mean, do you ever feel like that you're trying to dodge uh, all the sickness? I mean, you know, fall's almost, I mean, we're not going to feel fall because it's Memphis, so we'll kind of go from winter to like a really weird, like winter. I mean, we'll go from summer to like a weird winter, but still fall's trying to get here, which means sickness, which means if you're a parent, I'm sorry, like those kind of things. Like there's sickness out there. I mean, if you look at here, there's, there's, dangerous, there's dangerous places. Like, sure, we don't have wolves chasing us down. We're in Memphis. But there's dangerous spots. I don't mean physically. I mean dangerous places in your life, dangerous interactions. Like, we can feel that. Like, I am in danger. And then we see that this person's alone. Like, obviously, they're experiencing a lot of loneliness. Like, here's my point. Whether you're alone, whether you feel like you're at war with life, whether it's potential disaster, whether it's even harmful people, whether it's 3,800 years ago or today, we can relate. Because all of us have these places in our lives that we get really anxious over and really afraid and don't know what to do with. And the question is, when you have those places and those moments, what are you doing with your fear? Where are you taking your fear? Do you have a God you can take these really scary parts of your life to and know that God is going to be with you and help you? Or are you playing like a guessing game? See, I think a lot of us, at least I know for me, I like the idea of a God that is going to come and be with me, but I don't always buy into a God that actually is with me. I really like the idea of it. You know, growing up, I would read a passage like this, and I would treat it like as, as magic. Like, for example, read, look at verse 1 through 3. It says, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. Now, what I would do is I would try to run that through my head time and time again and just keep saying that, keep saying that, and keep saying that. And then like squint my eyes really hard and then go, okay, now it's true. 
But then I was still super anxious. I was still super scared. I still didn't know how to deal with the world around me. And then I would still have to go use something to get away from my fear. Again, the body will do what the mind isn't always willing or knowing how to do, meaning we will go to a substance, a Netflix, something just to numb us out. But guess what's waiting for you and me when we're done with that thing? Our fear, that troubling place, that hard thing. And so I've tried really hard, like, I just need to keep reading this. I need to keep reading this. I need to put God's word in me. And honestly, I was just treating the Bible as magic. Like, I just thought if I said it enough times and did it enough times, it would work. I was trying to treat it as magic. I would maybe, like, treat worship. If I come to worship and, like, do enough singing, like, karaoke my head enough, that I'll buy into it. I just need to force it in. But it didn't seem to work. Because every time I stepped outside of a place like this, guess what was waiting for me outside? All the arrows, all the disaster, all the pestilence. So then I got like really codependent with like church hotspots. Like if I just got to get in the hotspot, I'll be okay. But it just felt like it wasn't working. It's like you want to like tell Voldemort, go away. But he's not. Because it stays there. The fear stays there. The trouble stays there. So the question is then, what do we do? What do we do with these moments? How do we handle them? Well, I still think the direction is in those three verses. Just look at it again. It says that for those who are willing to go dwell in the shelter of the Most High, and then it says for those who are willing to rest, or in some translations, abide in the shadow, of the Almighty, to dwell and to rest. So what does that mean for us to dwell and to rest? I think the first part I'd want us to think about is to dwell. What does that mean? Here's what I'd say. You know, the Hebrew for the word dwell is to, like, go find home. Like, go find home. All of us need home base. Do you guys ever play uh, freeze tag? You know what I mean? Or hide and seek, anything like that? And we all know this, base was important. And, and when you're little kids, it's so great. You're running and running and running around, and you're like, base, got there. And when you're at base, nobody can freeze you, right? Nobody can get you. Um, I think that's even true for adults. We need base. But here's the thing. Base isn't necessarily a place. Like, it isn't necessarily here. For some people, here may be kind of anxious as well. Like, you're trying to give church and God and all these things a shot, but it's a lot. But here's what I think that base is for us. I think base is wherever God is. You're like, great, great insight. I think base is with whomever God is with. Have you ever got around a person that you're like, they have a connection, something with God there that I wish I had more of? You ever been around those people? I mean, there's people in this room that are that way. And you can't really explain it. You just know that like, when I'm around that person, I sense something more. And it's not that they're just so unique themselves, but there's a connection there. 
I think we've made this too complicated when it comes to how do we dwell with God. I think it works this way. We go dwell with people who dwell with God. I think we find people who dwell with God, and then we spend time with those people. And I think it helps us connect and learn how to dwell with God. I mean, you know, last week I talked about this, that we need very loving people in our lives to give us a recapitulation, a a reframing of who God is. You will not get an idea, I will not get an idea of who God is by going to a cave, learning a few Mr. Miyagi moves, and coming out and trying it on something. I'm going to have to go be in relationship with people, and I'm going to have to own when I don't have a connection with God, but you do. See, there are times, many times in my life, I do not have a connection with God, but I know others who do. We had an elders retreat this weekend, and we were going around just reflecting on the things that we love and appreciate about our church. Uh, And if you don't know this, but one of our elders, Stacy Martin, Stacy has this really interesting, great connection with God that I don't have. Like Stacy's kind of person that'll be like, she'll wake up at two or three in the morning and then pray very specific things for people. And it's real. I'm like, oh my God, what's going on? And I grew up like TBN swinging from the chandeliers, charismatic. Like I know crazy, right? And I'm like, how is this happening right now? And when I get near Stacy and she just kind of just runs with what she's thinking, I'm like, I feel closer to God. See, the, the, the thing that we do is we try to just like hatchet it down. I got to go connect with God. Let me go read the Bible more. Let me go study more. Let me go memorize more. Let me go whatever. And you come out of it and you're still lonely because we need to be around people who connect with God. Because listen, there will be times when maybe her or somebody else are like, I don't connect with God, but Robin does. Or I don't connect with God, but Amanda does. Or I don't connect with God, but Rachel does. Like we got to find, in that sense, the hot spots. And the more we find those hot spots, we can like connect with God. And that's how we learn to dwell. I don't think dwell is just one place. I think that's why even, like, listen, if, think how crazy it would be right now in Palestine, in Jerusalem, I mean, in Israel, if Jesus was still on the earth. Y'all, mess, chaos. It'd be like everybody can only live in Palestine, Israel. That's it. Like, that's the only place. So we're all just getting these flights to go there all the time. It'd be a mess. By Jesus ascending, there's something really brilliant there. By sending the Holy Spirit, it creates the ability for lots of hot spots for God to be there, for us to connect. Put plain and simple, if you're afraid and you can't sense God's presence, get near a person who's experiencing God's presence. It's not rocket science, but it is needy. Well, I don't want to bother them. Then you're going to stay in, you like, in your fear. Like you're going to stay in your anxiety. Well, I don't really want to push be needy. Well, then you're going to stay in this paralyzing state until we're willing to be needy, be known, and ask for help, especially with people who have a connection that may be for a few years, a few months, a few weeks, a few days, we will find ourselves staying in isolation. And in isolation, that's where the pestilence comes. That's where the wolves come. That's where the disease comes. That's where all the things come that can destroy us. 
So the first thing I would say is we have to dwell, we have to go where God is. But the second thing I would say is we have to rest. And what I mean with that is we have to force ourselves to use our other hand. Anybody here ambidextrous? No. Maybe, but I wouldn't believe you. Like, to, like being ambidextrous means you can use both hands, but most of us can only use one hand. I'm left-handed. I already have horrible penmanship with my left hand. And if you ever saw me rewrite with my right hand, you just would be like, we're done being friends. Like, it's just that offensive seeing me use my other hand. And here's what I've learned, though, within recovery and learning to use different parts of the brain. Like, even uh, therapists will have you do this if you go there long enough. They will make you write a letter or do something with your other hand. Anybody ever do that before? Right? Like, maybe you've had to, like, they'll force you, and you finish looking at the letter, and it's unlocking something in you that you didn't know what there is. The idea around it is inner child work. That's it. And to use your other hand. It's trying to help you connect with something deeper than the like, oh, of course, this is how you write. This is what you do. See, I think a lot of us, this is, this is where I would come to this. I think a lot of us, we maybe know how to get to where God is even at times. But we don't know how to stay there. Because we're like, okay, I got to go back out and go get it done. I got to go make it happen. Like, it's like I got charged. I may have been at zero and I got to 20% and now I'm going to go. Well, your battery life is ruined when you do that. Like, you're going to have to learn how to stay there, to rest there, to take a nap there is how the Greek would come out, like, to stay there. And it's going to feel like you're using your other hand. I believe one of Christ City's missions is to teach people how to use their other hand. Isn't that weird? I think one of the things we do well is, if you stay here long enough, we force you to use your other hand. Because the things that you've done before aren't always working. You can't show up here and just do church. You can't show up here and just be mindless. You're going to be forced to be near people who aren't like you. You're going to be forced in messages to have to think way in on some things differently. If you do community, you're going to be forced to admit that you could be right, but you also might be wrong. We are forcing you to use your other hand. But in that, helping you unlock things deeper that could be there in connections with God. Because now you interact with the person, you're like, maybe there's more of God's presence there than what I thought. For us to truly rest means that we stay in a place and let ourselves be pushed on something. It takes a lot of work for me to rest. And when I don't, I feel it. And I bet you could relate. Like we all like the idea of getting on the couch and kind of being mindless until we're there. Unless you're Enneagram 9, you won't relate to this. But unless you're like really there, you're like, I can't do this very long. This is too much for me. So what does it mean for you then to dwell and for you to rest? What does it mean for you to go where God is and to learn to use your other hand and like let this go? Because here's what the, the idea of using your other hand means. You quit trying to control this thing. See, here's what I would say a lot of this overwhelming fear comes from. At least this is for me. It comes from me trying to control moments. I love controlling things. It is using my left hand, the hand that is normal to me. I do it without thinking. For me not to control a moment, 
not to control a circumstance, to not put my hands and words all over it, feels like I'm using my other hand. But here's what's happening. You see, every time we try to control moments, we're only inviting more anxiety to exist. I'll even put it to you this bluntly. If you have a lot of anxiety, it means that you're trying to control something, which also means you're kind of your own God. At least that's what it's been like for me. Whenever I'm living in anxiety, all that does is it tells me on the dashboard of my life that I'm trying to be God. That I think I got this when I don't got this. You know, if you have kids, if you don't have kids, you were a kid, you remember this. I know for Charlotte, she's had like nightmares, bad dreams. That's not an unusual thing. Now, when Charlotte has a bad dream, um, you know, she would start coming like to where we are upstairs, crying, you know, wanting to get in bed with us, maybe to stay in her room crying. Now, do you think me as a good parent, like what I really need to do is go down there and tell her, sweetheart, there are no monsters in your closet and I need you just to go back to sleep and be done with this. And that may be a normal response. But then when she wakes up again, do I just go, you know what? She needs to get over this. Like, seriously, this is just ridiculous. She's five, grow up. No. Like, nobody's going like, yeah, deal with that monster in your closet on your own. Matter of fact, how scary is it? Like, how sad would this be if, if my parenting is trying to get her to a place where she just sits up in her bed terrified, but then says, you know what? I don't need daddy. I'll be fine. I'll just tell that monster to go away, and we'll move on. I'll go back to sleep. That's insane. No five-year-old has, like, the frontal lobe to do that. So do you know what I do when I go in her room when there's a monster? I open the door, and I beat up the monster. And then when she's like, he's in, he's in the mirror, I'm like, come here, monster, and I hit the monster. She's like, she's in the other mirror. I was like, get over here, monster, and I hit that monster. Like, we go to town on monsters at 2 a.m. in the Abbey house. And then by the end of it, she like may be laughing or she may be at peace, but either way, she's able to go back to sleep. Sometimes she's even like, that's not enough. I'm going to bed with you. And I'm like, oh, okay, come to bed with me. Is it annoying? Is it hard? Is it difficult? Sure. But isn't that what we want in the midst of our terror? To someone, like someone to come in our rooms and beat up the monsters? Like to look in the mirror and tell them, get out of there? to go in the closet and act like they're wrestling with someone and then come out and like your dad or your mom's on top and they've been victorious. So why do we stop doing that with God? Like, look at the very last little part here. Verse 14. If you'll hold on to me for dear life, says God, I'll get you out of any trouble. I'll give you the best care if you'll only get to know and trust me. And I love this next part. Call me and I'll answer. Be at your side in bad times. Oh, don't you miss that? Like, don't you miss those moments with God when you knew that was so true? Like, I, I know there's plenty maybe waves of apathy or waves of like, yeah, sure, okay, fine, whatever. I get that part. But like, what if that didn't have to be true? Like, what if God really was a super parent who came in the room in the midst of your fear and terror and, like, like took care of business? 
Like, what if you could have that? And here's what I'd say to you. I'd say if you don't have that, then whoever you're praying to isn't the God of the Bible. That's how much I believe that. If we don't have a God that comes to be with us in our moments of fear and terror, then I don't know if we really have a God. I think we just kind of have ourselves as a God. If we're just trying to live a buttoned-up life and saying, I got this, I don't need to, like, pull on God, I don't need to be needy, then I would say you don't really then, like, need a God because you kind of are trying to be your own God. And I'm only saying that because, like, that's me. Every time I'm trying to control things in my life, friends, I'm trying to be God. Every time I find myself living with anxiety, I go straight to, I'm trying to be God. And I can't tell you how much of my life I've wasted trying to be my own God and how taxing it is. And it doesn't mean you don't have fear. Listen, when it talks about fear in this, it's talking about terror. Fear is a very healthy thing to have. I have very healthy fear about life. I have very healthy fear about Suzanne, because I'm like, I love my wife, and I want to be in a relationship with her. I have very healthy fear about cars that are 1,000, 2,000 you know, pounds driving by, because they can kill me. I have good, healthy fear. But do I have to live in anxiety and terror? And what I'd say to us here in this room is, if you find yourself living in a lot of anxiety and terror, I'd do two things. I'd go find the person who seems to be a hot spot for God and connect and say, can we just hang out? Can we go grab coffee? You seem, I don't get it, but you seem to have a connection. And the second thing is, I would say like, learn to use your other hand. Force yourself to call out the fact that you're not God and that to acknowledge every time I'm living this anxiety, I'm trying to be my own God. And then go back to that person and go, can you help me? They're here in this place, or they're here outside of this place. But are we willing to be needy and be known and to ask for the help we need? Because, friends, life is scary, it's difficult, it's a lot. But God is willing to stand by our side through the proxy of even a person in this room. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you that we can interact, wrestle with, and experience your word and know that you truly want to be with us. You truly want to care for us. You truly want to be with us and meet us in our fear, like a father, like a mother with their child in the middle of the night. So what I ask for now is as we come before you in your table, and we recognize the ways that we've missed you and failed you, we would also find a lot of assurance of how you're not missing us. And if we're just willing to acknowledge that, maybe even to bump up against others who seem to have that connection with you and take a shot at like, hey, I don't know how to deal with all these scary moments in my life. Are you willing to be with me? Are you willing to love me? That as we do that with other people, we actually will find those people are representing you to us. They're loving us well. And in that, we can dwell with you and we can abide with you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.